Welcome to your next great read from the Okie Bookcast. I'm Jay Hall, and I'm on a mission to connect you with your next favorite book, and that's what this show is all about. We're going to be talking about books we love and giving you reasons to love them, too. The goal of this conversation is to introduce you to a bunch of great books and hopefully connect you with a few that you're going to want to read. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, author, screenwriter, and my favorite oldest daughter, Hannah Heron. Hannah, what's going on? Hey, guys. Glad to be here again. We've also got a special guest with us for this conversation, so Hannah, introduce Devin. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, guys, so today we're going to be chatting alongside Devin Green. She's a good friend of mine. We've been friends for a couple years now, and she's also an avid reader, so she's one of my book friends. Devin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your reading life? Thank you for the kind introduction, Hannah. Um, Yeah, so I read a lot whenever I was a kid. And as I kind of started to grow up, get into middle and high school, I really fell out of reading. And so that passion was kind of lost. And then last May, I sat down. I wanted to start spending less time on my phone. And my coworker borrowed Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed to me. And in reading that book, I really got immersed in that story. And it just kind of reignited that fire that I had in me for reading. And so I've kind of started to dedicate pretty much all of my free time now to reading again. And so this year, I've really set a goal for myself. I wanted to read 30 books. As of right now, I'm on 21. So I'm really hoping to kind of knock out the rest of that goal. You said you dedicate all your free time to reading. Devin, you are absolutely our kind of people. (laughs) That's right. All right, guys. So just a quick reminder of how this conversation is going to go. We're going to talk about books in three rounds. The first round is going to be a book that we're currently reading and some early impressions on it. Then we're going to talk about two books we've read in the last 30 days or so. We'll give you kind of a quick review and recommendation on those. We're going to end with what we call our backlist pick. This is one book each from a pre-assigned category, and it has to have been released at least five years ago. Devin, we will let you kick us off. What is something you're reading right now? So today I started reading There Are No Ordinary People by Jeff Lucas. He is an author. He's also a speaker and a broadcaster. And he also holds a pastoral teaching position at Timberline Church in Colorado. And There Are No Ordinary People is all about how life itself might not be extraordinary. Many things can be very ordinary. He pulls a lot from the Lego movie and how they have the song, (laughs) everything is awesome. And he completely contradicts it in saying that not everything is awesome. Many things are mundane, Um, but that by trusting in God and really following in his will, you can do things that are very extraordinary, even if you're, um, more on the ordinary side sometimes. And so he uses the biblical example of Barnabas from the New Testament. And it's very encouraging to think about that as someone who seemingly plays a small role in the entire scope of the Bible, but so much would be different without him. And so my first impression of this book is I'm just excited to see where it goes. Um, I'm very early on into reading it. And Jeff Lucas has a really good humor about him. He is this funny British man. And so I'm very intrigued to see his insights. Everything seems like it's taking a deeper direction. Oh, I love that idea. It reminds me of a book called Ordinary Radicals that I am not going to remember the author of. So that makes me really bad on a book podcast. But same idea that, you know, all of us have within us 
the the capacity to to be world changers, even if it's the change of one person's world, as opposed to this idea of we got to impact everything. And those those little things that we do are uh, are what what adds up. So that's cool. Hannah, what about you? What are you reading? Okay, so uh, I'm cheating a little bit this time, Dad. You're usually the cheater on the show. This time it's my time. Um, I love to give myself what I like to call a very Stephen King October. Um, (laughs) For me, it is not Halloween until I am curled up with a Stephen King book. So um, I haven't gotten a chance to get my hands on his new book. So I'm doing a little reread for my current read. And I'm reading Pet Cemetery. Nice. uh, Which is just one of my favorites of his. Um, I don't know if you guys know the backstory on this book, but... He wrote it when he was on a a family vacation of sorts. They were staying in a small house in kind of the woods and there was an actual like pet cemetery on the grounds where they were staying. And so this idea just came to him and it spiraled out of control and he actually put the manuscript in a box and he put it in the top of his closet and he said, okay, I've finally gone too far. I've finally done it. This book should never see the light of day. And I don't remember the specifics of how it ended up getting published, but I know it was something like he was on a contract, he was on a deadline, and nothing else was really coming to him. And he ended up just kind of pitching it almost as a joke, like, oh, hey, I have this. And uh, and it got bought and it got published, and it's one of his biggest stories. So um, the the thing in the top of his closet that he said should never see the light of day has now been <laughs> two major motion pictures and is still yeah. a best selling book. Um, it's awesome. So the premise of Pet Cemetery, which is creepier than I remembered, um, first time I read this, I was in I think early college. But essentially, there is a family who moves into a new home, kind of out in the woods a little bit. They have neighbors across the street from them, but definitely a lot of space between people. And at at kind of the back of their property, there is this um, Native American burial ground that was turned into a pet cemetery. And so when you bury something into this cemetery, it doesn't stay there. It comes back, but it is not like it was when it was alive. As you can imagine, something gets buried there, it comes back, it doesn't go well, right? So this is a very fun story for your spooky season. It starts off with a bang, and then we get into a little bit of history, and then we get into a little bit of culture of the society and of the society. And it's not it's not bad. I obviously really enjoy it. It's just not action-packed start to finish like some of his stuff is. There is that, but I think it's still, I think it's one of his best stories. The ending is absolutely terrifying. So it definitely delivers. If you are looking for a good scare, look no further. I would highly (laughs) recommend Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. You know, a lot of Stephen King isn't scary. It's weird. Like the the horror Mm -hmm. comes from how odd something is. That's right. This is one that has some legit scare to it. Yes. Yeah, it absolutely does. And that's, you know, one of the things I love about Stephen King is you don't really know what to expect until you crack the spine, right? Is it going to be one of those things that's just weird and eerie and atmospheric? Or is it going to be like, you can't turn off the light tonight because you picture what he (laughs) created, right? And this is the latter. All right, dad. So tell us what you are reading right now. This is one that you're going to be into. Love it. I'm reading a book called Wanderers by Chuck Wendig. First of his that I've read, I've seen his name a bunch and I've heard this book a bunch of times. And so I grabbed it and probably 60, 70 pages in, it's hanging out somewhere between dystopian science fiction and horror. It's got horror elements to it. And I, I think 
it's going to ramp more in that direction. But there's also just a real science fiction-y kind of world coming apart feel to it. So here's what I know so far. A comet passes close to the Earth. And the next morning, people get out of bed and just start walking as sleepwalkers. It starts with a, a young girl. She walks down the driveway, gets on the road, and just starts walking. Can't interact with her in any way. Her eyes are kind of vacant. If you get in front of her, she'll just keep walking through you. And then eventually more people begin to join her to form this herd of sleepwalkers that are all together and going in the same direction, but aren't interacting with each other or anything else. And if you try to stop them, so if you you know put your hand out or you wrap them up or you grab them, they go into a seizure that becomes very violent and ultimately goes to a pretty complicated place that I won't give away. So there's no stopping and there's no way to to keep them from doing what they're doing. That's the setup. There's also the the CDC has a an AI that's trying to figure out what's going on. So there's disease specialists trying to sort it out. There are people called shepherds who walk alongside them to keep them from hurting themselves and try to help them. Uh, so this whole weird culture world is is being set up. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm pretty early in it, but you can see it starting to go down some complicated roads. I've seen lots of comparisons to the stand, Ooh. very favorably compared to the stand. So that kind of world building and scope and, and it's a doorstop of a book. It's like 800 pages. So it's <laughs> it's it's epic in, in every sense of the word. The writing is great. It's fast. You know, it's not just dialogue. It's not just action there. There's description because there's some things that need to be described. He does a great job of foreshadowing and then paying off pretty quickly. So it's not like, you know, there's a gun on the wall and 600 pages later, it's going to go off. Mm-hmm. He he sets some things up that pretty quickly turn around and you see you see where it's going. You see what's happening. Not all that far in, but absolutely think it's great. Um, Hannah, it is one million percent up your alley. Uh, if you can tear yourself away from Stephen King for a little bit, this might be something to check out. <laughs> I think I could tear myself away for this. This sounds awesome. Yeah. Do you know if he typically leans more sci-fi or is he considered a horror writer? I think he's considered a horror writer. Okay. And that's the direction you feel like this is going? Oh, it's headed that way. You yeah. can see it coming. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. I love a horror with science fiction elements. Yeah. Um, that That is just my jam. All right. So Hannah, I think you're up. Tell us about a couple of books that you've read in the last month or so. All right. So um, first one I want to talk about is called Fool Me Once by Harlan Coben. Um, This was my first time reading Harlan Coben. I am a fan. I really liked his writing style. This was a really well paced book. His language is not like the simplest to read, but it's also not difficult. And so overall, just a pretty like laid back and enjoyable read. Um, this is a thriller about, you know, crime suspense thriller. It's about a former special ops agent named Maya. And essentially, Maya witnesses her husband's murder. And then two weeks later, he shows up on her nanny cam, clearly alive. Oh, so wow. yeah, interesting, right? This is kind of about her trying to figure out for herself what really happened. Is it really him? Is he really still out there? Does she maybe not have all of the answers or does she maybe not know all there is to that story? Um, and because she's a former special ops agent, there's a lot of that really cool like techie side of her, very like 
hardcore um, feminist kind of woman. She's really fun to read. She's really fun to be in the head of. And it's interesting, right? Because she she can't figure out whether or not to even believe herself, right? Because she knows what she saw, but then she knows what she saw on her nanny cam as well. And so there's kind of like a self-doubt piece of the puzzle as well. And she also doesn't know whether or not to bring other people into it or just to investigate it on her own because it's like, does she seem crazy to be saying, Mm -hmm. I know my husband's dead. I know we buried him two weeks ago, but I saw him. There's just kind of all of these questions and all these spinning plates. And so it's really kind of this thriller and this investigative story. It has multiple twists, which is fun. I love a twist within a twist. Um, You think you know what's going on at one point and you think wrong. And then you think again and you think wrong again. (laughs) And I love that because it just keeps you going, what, what, what? But at the same time, none of it felt contrived. It was genuinely surprising, and yet it genuinely made sense as well. It was all really plausible. So if you're into crime, if you're into thrillers, this is a really good book for that. That's a name that I've heard and seen forever, and I've never read anything. Thrillers are so hard because you get into somebody, and there's so many books from that person that you can just chase down that road for a long time. Yeah, definitely. One of the things about thrillers is... Not only can you read them fast, but you write them pretty fast, too, because they're just kind of nonstop action. The plot just kind of keeps moving. Um, I've written thrillers, and they are the faster books that I've written. You know, I've written thriller. I've written horror. It's way easier and way faster to write a thriller because... The plot just keeps going, right? And like There's the not as much atmosphere keeps... in a in a thriller. Yeah, definitely. And in horror, it's a lot more about setting. It's a lot more about atmosphere, and it's about you know creepy things, and and that takes a little bit more brain pause than the chase sequences and you know stuff like that. And this book is full of that, so it's a <laughs> lot of fun. Cool. All right, and then the other book that I read this month is called "See What I Have Done." It's by Sarah Schmidt. This is a really interesting story. It's actually a fictional retelling of the true story of the Borden murders. Have you guys heard of the Borden murders? Yeah. I'm not sure I have. A man and his wife were found murdered. Their daughter, Lizzie, was the one who was accused of the crimes, um, but it was never officially ruled that she did it. I don't think she was ever officially convicted. This story is really interesting because it's told from Lizzie's perspective, which is the daughter who was accused of the crime. It's also told from her sister Emma's perspective. Emma is her older sister, and Emma was out of town when the murder takes place. And so she is clearly not it. She's clearly not the one who did it, but she doesn't know who did. And so you have kind of the sister dynamic between her and Lizzie and her confusion of not really knowing who to believe. And so that's a really fun thing from her perspective. But then from Lizzie's perspective, you have the unreliable narrator. Did she do it? Is she remembering things correctly? Um, Is she not telling us the whole truth? And you kind of hear the thoughts and experience things in real time as she is giving you information or withholding information and you kind of get to decide what to believe. So it's a complicated story, obviously, and we don't actually know who committed these murders. And, you know, so that is still kind of this lingering thing, even within the book is believe what you want to believe. Here's the evidence and and here's what these different girls did and what these different girls knew. The, the language is a little complex. It's a little bit of a slower read. It's more about intrigue than about like 
really intricate plot. It was really interesting. I I wouldn't recommend it as like a super exciting read or anything. If you're into true crime, if you follow those kinds of stories, I think you'll appreciate it um, if you're looking for something like that. With the two perspectives, does it flip flop back and forth or is it more a section of perspective and a section of perspective? Yeah. So it switches not every single chapter, but like every couple chapters. So you get like a good chunk of time with each of the girls. And right as you think you're on the cusp of a little bit of information with one of them, it switches to the other. So it kind of keeps you hooked in that way. It really works. Um, I thought she did a great job with the perspectives. I like that it was told from not only Lizzie's perspective, because I think we'd be missing too much with just her perspective. I think we needed the emotional intrigue of also having Emma's perspective. Um, So I think that it really worked that way. Okay, Dad, so now let's talk about what you have been reading this last month. Prepare yourself for lots of science fiction. And for those of you who are listening and your eyes are rolling, stay with me and trust me on this, all right? Just just stay with me a minute. First book is called Shards of Earth by uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, and it's spelled like the composer if you're looking for him. Science fiction, space opera, epic, Star Wars-y kind of thing. But one of the things that Tchaikovsky is brilliant at doing is creating worlds. Uh, And so, and this is another example of it. He has a a real gift for creating alien creatures and alien environments that just, that work, uh, that have a a high level of detail that feel plausible. And, And so it's just, it's fun to read his stuff because you really can get lost in these worlds he's creating. Quick setup. It is, focuses on humanity. After the Earth has been destroyed, basically, by this entity called the Architect um, that just showed up one day and messed the Earth up pretty good. Humanity is kind of scattered throughout the galaxy. They've encountered lots of other races. They've established colonies on other planets. After the Earth is destroyed, there's a war uh, with the Architects that goes on for 70 years. But basically, it's just loss after loss after loss. So humanity bands up with these other races, uh, species, and Every time the architect shows up, they lose until this teenage girl on one of the ships miraculously is able to communicate with them and they go away. And so then humanity goes on a mission to create more people who can communicate with them like she does. And ultimately, uh, there's a, a final battle where they run the architects off. And that all happens before the book starts. So the book focuses on the crew of a freighter. These folks just kind of go place to place, picking stuff up, doing different jobs for different people that is piloted by the hero of the war. So the guy that was able to communicate with the architects and run them off. And so the the crew of the ship, they are hired to go find a ship that's been lost in space. And when they find it, suddenly they find themselves in the middle of all of these different competing factions that want the ship, but they also want what's on it. And they want the war hero, the pilot, because he has the ability to travel ships through their version of like hyperspace, warp space, whatever you want to think about. So there's competition going on for him. There's competition going on for the ship and the stuff moves around lots of different planets. It's it's huge. It's space battles. But again, Tchaikovsky's so good at he's great at writing relationships. So there's lots of kind of interplay. It's funny. He's great at writing these different species, and so they all make sense, and they have their own rules, and it, it works. He's great at writing the battles. He's great at writing the political stuff. 
it's just, if you're into that kind of book, you're going to be into this. If you're not, you're not. Like if, if you're a fan of The Expanse, if you're into Star Wars and, and those kinds of big space opera um, epics, this is for you. If all of that makes you roll your eyes, then this is not the place to start as good as he is. Uh, but a fantastic book, fun read, Shards of Earth by Adrian Tchaikovsky. And stunned silence from the crowd. We, apparently, we are not the space opera. Yeah, you're, you're not, not the people. Not you're quite. not who I'm talking to. <laughs> if I haven't lost you yet, on this second book, you got to trust me. It's it's sci-fi, kind of. It's called A Prayer for the Crown Shy by Becky Chambers. Burst on the scene several years ago with her Wayfarer series. The first book in that's called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. She's won a couple of Hugo Awards for her writing. A Prayer for the Crown Shy is part of her Monk and Robot series. And the only really science fiction-y thing about this is the fact that there's a robot in it. It's set on a, a moon that basically is Earth, but not exactly. But you wouldn't know that except that it's just ca- you're occasionally reminded of it. Uh, most of the people are people. They're human, with the exception of this robot. Uh, it's set in kind of a post-industrial collapse world, but far enough removed from it that the dystopian apocalyptic stuff's over. Like they're back to mostly agrarian society with some technology, but the rules because of what happened before is that all the technology has to be ecologically based, right? They, they're basically against synthetics. So in the midst of all that, the robots just disappear. They go away. So this is book two of Monk and Robot. The monk is a guy named Dex. And Dex is a monk who travels around doing tea services in these different uh, communities. So he's kind of a traveler. And in the wilderness, he encounters a robot, which is something no one has encountered in decades, centuries. Like they just thought they were gone. So that's book one, obviously very short. This book is basically a road trip of... Dex and Moscap, the robot, coming back down the road into civilization. And it's about the people they meet on the way. It's about their friendship. It's about personhood as the robot's trying to figure out who he is and what he is in the midst of this. There's no goal. There's no like big thing they're trying to overcome. It really is just this honestly beautiful little book about the relationship between these two people and how the interaction that they have with each other and the people around them forms their relationship, their understanding of community, their sense of identity, their sense of personhood. It is not the kind of thing I usually read because there isn't like big things happening, but she is a fantastic writer, Becky Chambers, and just has the ability to make you connect with everybody in the book. There is a sequence, and this is this sounds silly coming out of my mouth. There is a sequence where she makes you feel emotional about a fish. <laughs> oh. And it works. <laughs> and it just happens. It's one of those, if you're even if you're not in science fiction and you hear her name, you think, no, she's a sci-fi writer. I honestly, this book is for everybody. It is fantastic. It's a quick read. If you want something that you'll just walk away from feeling good, but also thinking a little bit, uh, A Prayer for the Crown Shy by Becky Chambers is absolutely the book you're looking for. So would you say you need to read the first one to understand the second one, or does it almost kind of work as a standalone? No, I think it absolutely works as a standalone. This is one of those where, again, because there are some things that are referenced that might not make a ton of sense, but it doesn't 
matter to the story or the conversation. I'd say go back and read the first one too. It's fantastic as well. But you could sit down and read this by itself and and, and get it. It's really cool. A conversation I actually had with some students a couple weeks ago. Um, I had one student who was wanting to write a story that was going to be mostly conversational. It was going to be very dialogue driven. And she was nervous about it. She was like, what are the rules? How do we handle this? And I said, here's the thing. Like, if you think about storytelling in general, it happens through conversation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to tell a story through dialogue is to tell a story like a human being, you know, and I think that that's so yeah. cool, especially that this is a robot that's, you know, in, mm-hmm. in conversation as well. Um, but I think it kind of boils it down to humanity and just what makes us human and, and how we figure out who we are. And I think just a lot of that happens through conversation. And I think that conflict happens through conversation and, um, there aren't a ton of, you know, novella or novel length pieces that do this. Um, yeah. And so I'm really intrigued to check this out to kind of see how she handled that. And, and you know, it's clearly effective. I'm very intrigued by that plot line in general. Not to be too topical, but I feel like we hear so much about AI recently. And for me, that seems like something that is so removed from something I would have a relationship with, something I would build a bond with yeah. necessarily. And so to see it in that kind of perspective and to see what I assume is a companionship between the two of them would be very interesting to read, a very refreshing perspective. She writes him in such a way that you almost forget he's a robot. Like there mm-hmm. there are these moments where she has to keep coming back and reminding you is different than everybody else. And it, it, the same thing happens in the story that you know their relationship is such that obviously you know, a seven foot robot Dex can't forget. That's what he's, he's interacting with. But at the same time, there are parts of him that become very human. It's great stuff. All right, Devin, it's your turn. Tell us about something you've been reading. So uh, one of the books that I've read in this past month is Jaws by Peter Benchley. Nice. And just for a little bit of context, anytime that the movie Jaws is in a movie theater, I go and see it. It's one of my all time favorite movies. I love to watch it. And so it was showing in Oklahoma City recently and I was watching it and it said based on the book Jaws by Peter Benchley. And I had no idea that the movie was based on a book. And um, this book had me locked in by the introduction just by reading um, Peter Benchley talk through the context of the book, how much research he did into it and how little research there was about sharks at that time even putting them into a good light. He also put a lot of effort after this book into giving money to conservation of sharks. And I think that's fascinating. I have a fascination of sharks personally. And so I really appreciated that. Also in the introduction, he started talking about how he wrote the screenplay for the movie and the people in charge of the production, when um, they were talking about the screenplay said, We want it to be really tight in the movie. We don't want any of the mafia, any of the romance in the movie. And he mentions, if you've seen the movie, you might think, what are you talking about? What's the mafia? What's the romance? And he says in the introduction, looks like you're going to have to wait to see, essentially, and start (laughs) reading it. So I was very intrigued. He started off very strong. Basic idea, there's this town called Amity, which they love to mention means friendship. And it is a seaside town and there is a man in charge of it he is the chief of police uh chief brody and one summer a shark comes up to their beach and essentially starts targeting the people on the beach 
And so they start putting efforts towards getting rid of the shark. But since it's the 4th of July, the town is dependent on the money that comes in from people renting summer homes, from people staying at the beach, using up their businesses. And so there's a lot of pushback on Chief Brody to not close the beaches, even though there are people being killed. The book is very interesting in how it is different from the movie. And um, I was very loyal to the plot line of the movie. <laughs> and so you see stark differences and you end up seeing more motivations behind the people who are going against Brody. You also get to see other aspects of Chief Brody's family life that makes him into a more dynamic character than he necessarily was in the movie. And I don't think I necessarily like it. I have to say, I ended up leaving it almost disappointed, but it's just because I was comparing and contrasting. And so it's a very well-written book. I really appreciate what all Peter Benchley did with it. He is very good at leaving you at the edge of your seat, putting that kind of stress in you, even if it's not necessarily dealing with the shark. And it's funny to me how often the shark isn't even mentioned in the book. And they'll go into these subplots that I didn't even realize were there, but it still balances out very well. And so I'm curious to watch the movie after as well and to kind of put them into perspective there and to see how it's different. So I definitely recommend it if you um, are a fan of the book, if you are a bit of a film buff for it, just to compare and contrast the plot lines. Were you hearing the cello music in the background the whole time? The entire time, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then the second book that I read this month, I actually finished it last night. It's a very new book. It's called I'm Glad My Mom Died by Jeanette McCurdy. And um, if you don't know who Jeanette McCurdy is, she was a child actor. Uh, She's specifically known for her roles in Nickelodeon's show iCarly and Sam and Cat, where she plays Sam Puckett. This book goes from her very early childhood up through recent years and talks about how she got into her acting career and how her mom impacted her life. And so when she was eight years old is whenever she did start her acting career. And um, it's because her mom wanted her to become an actress. It seems like throughout Jeanette's entire childhood and going into her adulthood, the only motivation she had in her life was to make her mom happy. And so she didn't really care kind of what stakes were up for that, whether that's exhaustion, not making friends because she's homeschooled or acting at the time making sure that her mom is always happy at all moments, whether she's in a fight with her family or she's pushing her to do something that she doesn't want to do or just letting her mom coddle her because it really seemed like the two of them only had each other in this really dysfunctional relationship as she's growing up. In the background while all this is happening, her mom is uh, struggling with cancer as well. And so she'll go into remission or she'll end up being sick again. And the sad thing is her mom was very manipulative manipulative to her and ends up using guilt and shame and emotions to teeter Jeanette's motivations. And it even gets to a very sad point where by the time she's 11 years old, because her mom is so concerned with her own image, it manifests into her being very concerned about Jeanette. So a lot of the book focuses on Jeanette's eating disorder that she had for about 10 years. And so it was a big struggle for her. She struggled with anorexia for a while, and then it turned into binging and um, bulimia as well. And so it kind of walks you through really the darkest times of her life and then moving into recovery as an adult and figuring out when it's okay to not 
base every part of your image on pleasing someone else, essentially, and learning how to be an adult, learning to take care of yourself and um, sometimes putting yourself first. And if you can imagine, her mom does die. And so it is broken into two parts where there's the before and the after. I loved this book. I just love seeing her perspective. It was very interesting. She wrote it as if she was still a child while she was in her childlike um, stages of life. And something that I will talk about with my friends or hear from other people is that when you're a child, the life around you, you think is completely normal and what everyone else goes through, whether that's good or bad. And that was really the impression that was given here is that why doesn't every child act like this? Or why do my siblings not act the same way that I do? This is how everyone should be. And so it was very interesting to get her perspective. It's a very heavy book, of course, considering the topics, um, but it's definitely worth a read. I've seen so much hype about this book. I've seen a lot of interviews that she has done since this book has come out. And so I, I do highly recommend it among the sensitive material. I think that it is definitely worth a read. What's interesting is, you know, I mean, Jeanette McCurdy was an icon for our generation, right? Like she was a girl that we all looked up to. And we saw her as a character. We didn't see her as a human being. And that's how the whole world saw her during her acting career. And she was just a kid, you know. Um, So I love that we're getting to hear her story. I haven't gotten to read this book. I really want to. Um, The buzz about it has just been incredible. Um, And I think that she's really awesome. And I'd I'd love to kind of hear more about her story and more about her recovery. And, you know, because I know that she's had to recover from a lot but um, but I'm glad that we're getting to hear this story, and I'm glad that we're getting to hear more and more stories like this. Gosh, I mean, just th- the pressure of a child actor and of having a life that's that much in the spotlight from such a young age, it's just kind of unfathomable to me. You talk about the buzz around it. I um, saw a tweet the other day said, if you plan on writing a memoir, you need to read this first because this this is how it's done. One of the things I really love about reading, um, as someone who really likes to watch TV and film, you can watch things and you can assume how people feel. But when you're reading and someone is telling you, this is exactly how I was feeling, this is the depth of my emotion. That's one of the things I love so much about reading. And that is just essentially this entire book. I always say watching is a third party experience. Reading is um, like you're in the head of the person that it's happening to. So you know, yeah. reading takes it to that next level and actually puts you in the situation. All right, guys, we are going to switch gears again. Okay, Dad, we are going to do our backlist pick. Um, the category this time is a nonfiction book. Remember, it has to be at least five years old. So what have you got for us? Okay, my book is Boomtown by Sam Anderson. I have to read the subtitle because it's so long, so forgive me. Uh, Boomtown, the fantastical saga of Oklahoma City, its chaotic founding, its apocalyptic weather, its purloined basketball team, and the dream of becoming a world-class metropolis. So Sam Anderson is was a writer for the New York Times. He was sent to Oklahoma City to cover the Thunder. This is the Harden, Westbrook, Durant, Ibaka. This is when the Thunder were the Thunder. He comes to Oklahoma City to cover the Thunder and then stays for five years. I mean, goes back and forth, but basically hangs out in Oklahoma City for five years because he just became so intrigued with the city. And so Boomtown is the product of those five years. And it it is a, it's a history of Oklahoma City from the land rush through around 2010. And it's told in a couple of different ways. 
he basically takes these scenes from the life of the Oklahoma City Thunder and compares them to different things that happen in Oklahoma City history. Oh. So talking about the purloined basketball team, the, the move of the Thunder from Seattle to Oklahoma City in the same context as the land rush where land was taken away from people who had it. Right. And, and managed to just manages to juxtapose those two ideas. He gets into uh, the racial history of Oklahoma City, the economic history of Oklahoma City, different historical figures in Oklahoma City history, some that you would probably recognize their name, others that you might not. But it's just brilliantly done because he pulls together a wild cast of characters. And I'll just give one example of kind of how he ties all this together. There was a uh, a moment for the thunder. A, a woman in the stands was hit in the head with a basketball. A pass from Kevin Durant goes wide and she gets hit in the head. And he went over and got the ball and hugged her and gave her a kiss on the forehead. And so he tells that story. And then he says, this is an interaction that would not have happened X number of years ago. And then starts talking about Ralph Ellison, who was born in Oklahoma City and whose family moved away because his mom didn't think they were going to have any opportunity there. And then it shifts to a wild night with Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips, where they go painting rainbows on the streets in Oklahoma City. And then shifts again to talk about Clara Looper and the sit-ins in the late 50s. He just manages to bring all of these things together. He clearly is in love with this city. He still comes back all the time. And so it's a realistic picture of Oklahoma City. I mean, it, it doesn't paint this as a perfect place, but it's also a realistic picture from somebody who who's a fan. You can come to it from a basketball angle, and that's really interesting if you're interested in that. The historical angle is really good. It's very well researched. But there's also just, again, all these personalities, uh, the people that he meets along the way that tell him different stories about the city and take him around to different parts of town and kind of explain the history of those. If you are from Oklahoma City, you this is like must read. You you need to know this book. But even if you're not, there is so much to it that just speaks to community and speaks to some of these bigger issues that have gone on in the the history of the city that it's it's worth a read for everybody. This book has been on my list forever and I just haven't gotten around to it. But I love especially that this is written by a guy who's not even from here. Yeah. And um and I think that says a lot about this state that we're from. Um it's not a perfect history by any stretch of the imagination, but so much of the good that it has going on now is just so awesome and I love that an outsider could come in and see that and recognize that. Devin, what about you? What do you got? My nonfiction pick is Back to Amy by Charles Moriarty. And so Charles Moriarty is a photographer. He is the photographer credited for um, taking the photo that was the album cover for Amy Winehouse's first album, Frank. And so this book consists of a lot of photographs, but it also starts off with Charles meeting Amy. They had a very short amount of time in New York City, and they were tasked with making it look like a London photo shoot, which if you think about it, the two landscapes are completely different. And so it talks through um, them starting a friendship together because this was something that ended up being a relationship that lasted throughout the years. These photos that were in this book were previously never before seen. He um, never wanted to show them and kept them very intimate and close to him until years after Amy's passing. 
And it was after he saw the um, documentary about her life, Amy, that he decided to release these because he felt like it showed her in a different light than um, what a lot of people perceived her as. And that was something that I found very interesting. I'm a very big Amy Winehouse fan. And um, a lot of people consider her to be very misunderstood in her career, especially towards the end of her life. And so seeing this perspective from the very beginning of her career, where she's maybe not as widely known, but she's still the same very brash, very brave woman that she was, was very interesting. So it starts off with his experience in that photo shoot, the two of them working out awkward kinks and actually getting to know each other through this. And then after this, he starts interviewing other people in her life, whether that's family members, other people that were in her band. And they talked a lot about the very beginning of her career. And so people actually discovering her and seeing just what a powerhouse she was, whether that was vocally or through her extreme personality that she had. And so I was very fascinated by this as an avid Amy Winehouse fan. Sometimes it's the only thing I'll listen to for about a week. Um, I highly recommend this because I think it paints her in a very different light than we're used to seeing as there are some moments where she feels shy. There are some moments where she's not as loud as you see her once her career starts taking off. It's also very interesting to see her just kind of at her roots where they're playing tiny little dive bars instead of huge stadiums or very intimate recording sessions for her and how she would not waver on a lot of the beginnings of her career where sometimes you can see artists having to make compromises just to start out. So to see her in this smaller scale, more intimate scale, I feel like I'm getting to know her so much more. And so I highly recommend it. It's a very quick read. Like I said, so much of it are the photos from this photo shoot. And so it's interesting to even see that, see her look differently than she did um, as her career went on. But I do highly recommend it if you have any interest in Amy or just in seeing a new light shown on her into the very beginning of her career. It goes back to what Hannah was saying earlier about the McCurdy book, that it's it's fascinating to see these extended pictures, no pun intended, of yes. of these people that we really only see one way and to get, of course, McCurdy's case, her perspective, but the perspective of someone else who was there and interacted and to even get that in a visual form is a really interesting way to tell those stories. So that, that sounds cool. All right, Hannah, what do you got? All right. So for my nonfiction backlist pick, I am going to talk about The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker. This is a really cool book. So Sean Aker um, studied at Harvard, was a professor at Harvard, and he did a research study over the psychology behind happiness in its relation to success. Um, So what's interesting is typically in life, human beings tend to think that if they are successful, then they will be happy. They think that that's the sequence of events, right? What Sean discovered through his research is actually the opposite. It actually kind of flips it on its head. Essentially, what he found is across the board, the happier that people were to begin with, the more they were successful in the future. And so it's actually kind of the flip of what people think. You know, contentment doesn't lie within success. Success actually follows choosing happiness in the moment, whether you are where you want to be or not in your career. 
So he essentially, he tells these stories and he gives us case studies through a series of like seven particular findings. Um, There's one that he calls the Tetris effect that I found particularly interesting. And that was um, basically kind of the idea of reticular activation, which means the more that you focus on something, the more that you see it everywhere, right? So his thought was focusing on things like gratefulness, focusing on positivity would cause people to start to see the positives in others or see the positives in situations or see um, situations where they could be grateful or, or recognize their thankfulness for certain things. It's the same kind of reticular activation that you have when you're, you know, like if you're looking to buy a new car and you're looking for this certain kind of car and then all of a sudden you see this car everywhere. It's the same mm-hmm. thing, but it's with choosing happiness and choosing positivity. It was just really interesting. He found basically across the board through these different case studies that happier people were more successful at work. The first time I read this book, I had just graduated high school. And so I was going into college. I had a lot of anxiety about going into college. Just wasn't quite able to apply it entirely in that moment. I mean, I definitely got a lot from it going into college. I read it again over the summer after I graduated with my master's when I was, you know, really jumping into adult life. And I would highly recommend that. I would recommend this book for um, young professionals, maybe people who are starting in their careers. Um, I'd recommend it for anyone, but I think particularly if you are in kind of that season of life, this is a really good book to read because it gives you um, just a fresh perspective on the idea of climbing the corporate ladder. I really loved this book. I loved it enough to read it multiple times in different seasons of life and and get something new from it each time. So it's very, of course, very thoroughly researched. Um, And he's also a great writer. He has a very conversational voice. You're taking in a lot of information, but it doesn't feel like drinking from a fire hose necessarily. He breaks it Mm -hmm. down into very bite-sized pieces. So it was definitely a really good read. I would highly recommend it. That is very interesting to see that total reversal of how I think, especially like you said, as young professionals were led to believe of that grind and everything. And sometimes I think that that's sort of watered down um, whenever it's approached to us and saying, you should have goals for yourself. You should set yourself up for success in this way. And I think that if you're a goal oriented person, I am, I zone in on, I have to do this. I have to make this goal. And um, we'll, most of the time, sacrifice my contentedness and my happiness for that, because all that matters at that moment is that goal. And to see that reverse into, if you take the time to actually think about what you're doing, maybe even the importance of what you're doing, you can find that success in it. And I I really like that perspective. I think it's such an important message for everybody, but particularly for a generation that is told, on the one hand, self-care, 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 but don't take any time to actually do it, right? That yeah. You got to make sure you, you take time for your mental health, but you need to be working 60 hours a week and doing this and doing this and doing this so that you can be successful. And to have a voice out there that says you don't have to do that. And there there are lots of those. I wish they were amplified more. Choose to be happy. Find ways to be happy. And, and I appreciate, Hannah, that it's not just, okay, so go be happy because those are really frustrating books. Or, or messages at all. Yes. If you're just this, then everything will be better. Okay, great. But I can't do that. Like, help me mm-hmm. figure out what that step is or what it looks like to get there. So it sounds like 
because it's research-based, it's not just, here's my seven good ideas about things. Here are things I've actually seen work and you can do them too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and his tone being more friendly and more conversational and more like, hey, like I just want to talk to you about this, th- that helps too, right? So it's not yeah. just, here are these actionable steps. It's, hi, I'm a human being. I've had success. <laughs> I'm also happy. Let's talk yeah. about how this works, right? Um, and it works very well. I, I really like this book. Yeah. Love it. All right. Well, I think that's it for this edition of Your Next Great Read. Devin, thanks so much for hanging out with us tonight. Thank you for having me. This is really fun. And Hannah, pleasure as always. Always. Remember, you can find links to all the books we talked about in the show notes and on okiebookcast.com slash next read. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Bookcast newsletter for more news and recommendations that come straight to your inbox. We'll be back next month with more books and a special guest that I cannot wait for you to meet. So Hannah, until then, I'll give you the last word. Go find something good to read. 